morning. Uh, would you stand for the, the reading of the word of the Lord? Our text today is Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And Grace Kids, you are now dismissed, pre-K through second grade. Walk with your parents back there. You have heard it said that Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. In truth, those terms are not mutually exclusive. Relationships and religions actually have a lot in common. See, people chase after religion because for better or for worse, they fall in love with it. And people will sacrifice anything almost religiously for a person that they've fallen in love with. When you care about something, you prioritize it above many things, even your own interests. With that in mind, I'd like for us to consider how our relationship with God is like and unlike some human relationships. And I think this consideration will be instructive for us today because the book of Jude is about three types of people and their relationship to each other and their relationship to God. Now the first type of person that Jude is primarily concerned with is false teachers. The second type of person, for the purposes of our sermon today, we'll call them older siblings. And the third type of persons, we will call younger siblings. So if you had to put the book of Jude into a single one-sentence summary, it is the oldest of the older siblings, Jude, writing to the other older siblings to guard their younger siblings against the dangers of false teachers who would separate them from their father. This is a very relational pastoral letter from one brother to siblings that he loves and cares about. Now, in this book, specifically our text, is the introduction to the book, the first four verses, where Jude identifies himself, he reminds his brothers of their identity, he exhorts them to fight for the souls of their younger brothers against the threat of the false teachers, and he gives some clues as to the solution. Now, these four verses are basically an outline for the rest of the book. There's a lot here. But today I want us to dwell on two primary truths inside of these four verses. First, I want us to examine the danger of trusting revelations that are not from God. And second, I want us to know and reflect the character of the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. So first, the danger of private revelations. Now in my life, the Venn diagram of people who know me well and people that are closest to me is almost a complete overlapping circle. So much so that those terms feel synonymous. The only exception is one tiny sliver with two remarkable exceptions, those being my two children. My oldest child, Madeline, is 15 months old, and she doesn't even know my first name yet. But she's one of the closest people in the world to me. My second child, Josiah, is due on June 10th, and he's never even seen my face. But he's one of the closest people in the world to me. The third person is my wife, 
and she knows me better than anyone. So it's interesting that of those three people that are closest to me, they would occupy the complete opposite ends of the spectrum as to how well they know me. And another thing that's interesting about these relationships is that the overlap of obligation and personal preference is very different in each one. Now what I mean by that is that if my wife tells me she wants a particular shirt from Ross for her birthday, that's what I should get her. There's no need to overcomplicate this, right gentlemen? If she wants a particular shirt for Ross, from Ross, out of love for her, I should get that shirt from Ross and not a motorcycle like I would want. In fact, the overlap between what she wants and what I'm obligated to do is so significant that not only should I not get her a motorcycle, neither should I get her just any shirt off the rack from Ross. I should pay attention to her preferences and the nuances of what she desires because I love her. My love for her obligates me to pay attention. The overlap between her stated preference and my obligation is huge, and this stands very much in contrast to my relationship with my daughter. She spends approximately 75% of all of her waking hours asking me for things that common sense and my love for her dictates I not give to her. When I get home every day from work, she will crawl up into my lap, she will grab each side of my collar, press her nose to mine, and she'll say, cook! please? She wants me to make her dinner. And my love for her obligates me to make her dinner, and I'm even delighted to do so. However, from that point on, it's kind of up to me to use my creativity and common sense in determining what I feed her. I may not choose to accept her input of cookies as a request for dinner, but I will, because I care for her, acquiesce to her request to feed her, right? So I have to discern because she is beset with desires that are not good for her. For example, like her desire to lick every shoe. But my relationship with God is much closer to my relationship with my wife in this regard. If my king tells me to love, not only am I obligated to do so, I'm obligated to use his definition when I do it. Private revelations or interpretations of God's will are of no value when God has spoken differently. Now in the setting of our book, Jude is functioning as a sort of eldest brother writing to the less older, still older siblings because there are abusers that have snuck in and are telling the youngest siblings lies about what the father wants. Jude is appealing to the older brothers who know the father's best. They don't just know his rules, they know his heart. And Jude's appealing to them based on the father's revelation of himself to fight for the good of his younger siblings. See what he writes specifically. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny Jesus. Jude is warning the more mature believers against people who would encourage them and their younger siblings to set aside their relationship with Jesus in favor of prioritizing their own sinful desires. He says they pervert the grace of Christ into a license to sin. And this is the very same concern that Paul wrote about in Romans 5 when he says, shall we continue sinning in order that grace may abound? By no means. But these 
Christians that Jude is writing to, I mean, they are immature in the faith, sure, but they're not actually children. So what is it about the false teacher's message that is so compelling that it would draw grown adult believers who have been secure in the grace of Christ out of that back into sin that they have forsaken? What is so compelling here? What's so dangerous? Well, according to this text, it seems like they have a two-pronged strategy. On the one hand, they're claiming to have private revelations from God. They're claiming to have new information, new teachings that were revealed to them personally. It says rejecting authority, they rely on their dreams. They have a word from the Lord for you. God spoke to their heart and they just want to share a word with you. They were just having the best quiet time the other day and God just spoke to their hearts in the still small voice and he told them exactly what they needed to hear, what they wanted to hear, and they want to tell that to you and apply it to your life as well. And I don't know if you guys grew up around that sort of spirituality very much like I did, but if not, I can tell you it's very common today. This is not some weird, ancient, pagan, witch doctor kind of scenario. This is that sweet, middle-aged woman in your Bible study talking about God telling her that he wants to do a new work through her that he's never done before. It's about that very kind older man who's lived long enough to know that Jesus is bigger than the Bible. This is about that super nice girl in your class that's always posting on Facebook about how really all Jesus wants for you to do is to love yourself because you're already perfect. The common denominator is that they start a sentence with something like, my God told me and they never finish the sentence with anything close to what God's word actually says. Now thankfully, God knows that we are hard of hearing and awfully forgetful when it comes to his word. So he took everything that we needed, and he wrote it down and gave it to us in a book. And then he preserved that book for 2,000 years for us. And he says in that book about how we are to use it. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and is suitable for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be fully equipped, lacking in nothing. You are not lacking in that person's private revelation from God. You do not need it. Your spiritual information is not deficient if you have the word of God and are living by it. But of course, there's more than one way that you can go about claiming to speak for God. The obvious way to speak for God is something like, God told me, so it must be right. But the much more subtle and common way, in fact, the oftentimes more socially profitable way, is to say, this is right, so it must be what God says. We assume that God is never wrong, which is true. So we take whatever we already believe to be right, and we set that up as an interpretive framework through which to look at Scripture, rather than looking at Scripture to tell us what is right and wrong, and then determining our worldview from there. We pick what's right, and then we scour our Bibles looking for anything that looks like it, and we say, yes, this looks like what I believe. This must be right. And no, this does not look like what I believe. I can discard that. We set ourselves up as a judge over God. And this is the more socially profitable route because one way you can make this sound is what we believe is right. And God only teaches 
what's right. So clearly the Bible must agree with us. We are in the majority. We are, we are right. And if that's the case, it makes it so much easier to write off people of the opposing view because now, not only are they disagreeing with you, they're disagreeing with God Almighty and he also never happens to disagree with you. So that's one side of the two-pronged strategy. It's co-opting the authority of God to back our own opinions and beliefs. But the other prong of this strategy is, is much more social. Listen, these false teachers are not weird people, okay? It is a great strategy of Satan to have the church expect witch doctors and sorcerers, politicians of the opposing political party, when in reality, he's sending you someone very attractive and relational to tell you something you already want to believe that will make you very popular if you accept it. These are people that might try to make you look weird because you keep trying to put God inside of a box by only looking for his word inside the Bible. And this is interesting Jude says they show favoritism to gain an advantage. Okay, these are very friendly people. They're often kind. They always seem to know what to say. They're not necessarily going after the fringes of the social group. They're seeking out people who are popular and advantageous to them. When you're with them, you feel special. You feel loved. You feel like they're favorite. And you feel like, man, this person gets it. Now, Trevin Wax has an excellent book called The Multidirectional Leader where he talks about the common tendency of people to identify what they perceive as the primary direction that the enemy is coming from and to leave all other directions completely unprotected. You direct all your troops to the front and you neglect the sides and the rear. The problem is that not only does this leave you unprotected elsewhere, it's really an outdated strategy for the war that we're in. This is not 1700s line them up and shoot combat. This is guerrilla warfare. It's not all enemies in front, and perhaps more importantly, it's not all friends behind and beside us. In front, the danger is even hiding among people that we're sent to rescue and cities that we're meant to rebuild and spoils that we're meant to enjoy. If we decide to lay waste to all of this in some sort of scorched earth campaign, not only are we going to destroy things besides the enemy, we're going to miss the enemy all around. Beside and behind us, Enemies lie entrenched in the camps of our perceived allies firing loud cannon towards the front while secretly poisoning our water supply in the back, directing the entirety of our arsenal in front of us is going to miss the enemies and it's going to harm our own people both in and outside of the camp. True multi-directional leadership does not only identify the threats in every direction, it identifies the true objectives without getting distracted by oversimplified perceptions or fears. So it's interesting. It, it identifies many more enemies, but it responds with much less fear. Now take, for example, <clears throat> Christians spending time from the 19th to the 20th century, pressing very hard for abstinence from alcohol on the one hand, while openly endorsing slavery on the other. The real enemy was not alcohol, it was alcoholism. And more importantly, that was not the only or even the worst enemy because they were keeping their brothers and sisters in chains. More recently, this very same inability to respond to threats from more than just one direction has gotten so bad that we've kind of steered into the skid and we started calling it choosing the worst evil. 
to focus on, or maybe picking the lesser of two evils. And this sort of moral philosophy at its extremes allows for tolerating and even affirming virtually any indiscretion or immorality so long as the alternative feels worse. And please, allow me to make a very important nuance here. I'm not talking about making what feels like an impossible choice. I'm talking about making impossible choices into black and white scenarios. I'm talking about whatever they do is fine so long as they're on our side against something we perceive as worse. Now let me be perhaps uncomfortably clear. I'm referring to a mindset that would have you redraw the enemy lines around everything related to the opposing political party and fixate on that threat to the point where you would leave a healthy church because they're not pointing all of their guns in that direction all the time and either stay home or join a church that compromises on biblical teaching but agrees with your political sensibilities. If this sounds harsh, please hear me. I am saying it because I want all of you here. Not because we're the best, because we're brothers. Now you may not think that this happens very much, but I don't know anyone in ministry who cannot name more than five examples in the past four years. But that's our context. What about the text? Well, here in Jude, you've got these first century Christians who have found some friends who share their dislike for the legalism of the Pharisees. These people say the gospel is all about grace. It's a good start. They say that it covers over any sin, and that's true. But they say so much so that it doesn't matter if you sin. Well, now we have a problem, sure. But hey, at least these guys hate the Pharisees, right? No, because the greatest danger is not the Pharisees. The greatest danger is a loss of relationship with Christ and with your brothers. Now, when I was young, my mom used to tell my sister and I, if we were ever separated from her in Walmart, we should never go with any stranger that does not know the family code word. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if they say something terrible has happened. If they don't know the code word, we're not to go with them. It doesn't matter if they say my mom's been shot and she needs our help. If they don't have the code, my mom didn't send them. There is nothing so evil or so dangerous or pressing they could describe that it would override my responsibility to test them for the code. And I know you're all wondering what's the code word. Nice try, kidnappers. <laughs> it doesn't matter in the end how trustworthy a person appears it only matters if they know the code. Would it be awful if my mom was actually injured? Of course it would. But the more likely and greater danger is us being permanently taken from her. Now Jude is deeply and profoundly concerned that his younger brothers and sisters who do not know Jesus as well as he does yet might be deceived by people claiming to be from their father and offering them poison. And do you know why Jude is so cautious of this? because he was Jesus' biological little brother, according to church tradition. He actually grew up with Jesus, but he didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. So if Jesus' own flesh and blood brother could miss the reality of who he was for almost 30 years, how much greater is the danger of these young, new Christians who do not yet know the heart of Jesus 
being deceived by people claiming to be from Jesus and feeding them lies that already align with their sinful nature they're trying to overcome. So he tells them, you must test these supposed teachers to see if they follow the code. Do they know the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints, or do they say that it has changed? Do they say it's almost the same, but God has shown them a newer addition, that the old version is now culturally outdated, or do they preach the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints? There is no outward indication you can rely on except that they held to the teaching of the apostles, and the teaching of the apostles does not get software updates. It is a one-and-done situation. But listen, as simple as this sounds in theory, we cannot miss the fact that these people looked legit. They hated all the right stuff. They said the right things. And that's why Jude uses a bunch of metaphors that sound really strange to us, but they all mean essentially the same thing. Later on in the book, he calls them hidden reefs. Now, coral reefs will oftentimes block the currents and the waves incoming from the ocean so that the water immediately above the reef is relatively calm. You don't realize that just a few feet below the surface, there are jagged rocks and coral that will sink you. He calls them shepherds, which are only protecting the flock because they want to eat the sheep themselves. He calls them waterless clouds that you follow deep into the desert hoping for a rain that never comes. He calls them trees that look healthy but bankrupt you because they don't produce a fruit in harvest time. He calls them wandering stars. That's a reference to planets that inexperienced sailors would often mistake for stars in the night sky, not realizing that rather than staying fixed in place on the horizon, they were following unpredictable orbits and they would lead these sailors out to sea to starve thinking they were going home. And not only do these metaphors all mean the exact same thing, they are all references to different places in God's word. Ezekiel, Proverbs, Isaiah, Matthew, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 2 Peter. This is a list of metaphors for false teachers from all over scripture. And this is for at least two reasons. First, to point out that these people were indeed long ago destined for condemnation, is what Jude says. They were expected. God's not caught off guard. He's been warning his people about them for a long time. He has equipped his people to deal with this. Secondly, because these phrases reference places where scripture goes into even greater detail about who these people are and how to deal with them. So Jude is saying, the Bible is your all-the-time, hyper-relevant, go-to resource for everything you need to deal with in the Christian life, including what to do when someone tells you the Bible is no longer relevant. There's an entire book for that. So that's the first observation I want us to see in this text, that the danger of trusting revelations that are not from God. Now, secondly, I want for us to reflect on the character of the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. So Jude is appealing to older brothers and sisters in the congregation who know Jesus, who know the code word, to watch out for their little brothers and sisters, to contend for them, to earnestly fight for them, not against them, for them. Now, where do I get that? He says, contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Faith is distinct from mere truth in that it's necessarily connected to people. God has truth, people have faith. Specifically, human people living on this earth have faith if God has gifted them with it. So faith is not the substance of truth. It is the substance of a person's belief, trust, and delight in the truth, 
and it is the thing which unites them to Christ. So the important distinction between merely contending for truth and contending for faith is that you are contending for the belief in, the trust in, and the delight in the truth that unites children with their father. It's not merely contending for truth or opinions. It is contending for people. The enemy is a thing which corrupts persons, not a thing which corrupts truth. Truth will be fine. Truth doesn't need our help. All truth needs us to do is get out of its way. Contend for persons. Contend for their response to truth. Now, private revelations that contradict the word of God are lies that threaten to separate young children from the faith from their father. They must not be tolerated. You contend for your brothers and sisters. If you see a white van pull up and someone get out and offer your siblings candy and say, I'm going to take you to the father. (laughs) Now we know what to do there. The response is not, well, that's their opinion. They have a right to it. If my brothers and sisters want to go, I guess it's their right. Who am I to judge them? Maybe I'll pray for them. No, you contend for them. You pull them back. And what's important to see here is Jude's warning is that even if it's not a white van, but your best friend's car, even if it's not candy they're offering, but telling you to give in to sin because it doesn't matter, even if they agree with you on every single political and cultural thing that you feel is so important, if they miss the word of God, you better not miss that red flag. No, what I'm not saying is write them off. I'm not saying cut off anyone with a red flag. I'm saying engage with them earnestly. Fight for their faith too. When I say contend even for the faith of the person that's tempting you, you might well ask, well, how am I supposed to do that? Do we all now have to become expert apologists that can handle any objection from any cult or heretic or confused person? I don't think so. Because look at what Jude specifically asks God to give us as resources for our contending in the very opening of his letter. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now do not go, all you need is love on me, saying that we need doctrine, not love. We we need love, not doctrine. There we go. Now clearly we need doctrine, because in order to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints... You have to define the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, and that requires doing some doctrine. So we can set aside that reductionistic reasoning. But what you can say is that of all the resources, Jesus' brother could have asked him to give to us for our contending. He did not ask for intelligence, defiance, a quick wit, or doctorates in theology. Our brother Jude asked our eldest brother Jesus to give us mercy, peace, and love in order to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints so that we might be united permanently with the Father. And why these things? Well, I think because contending for people feels exhausting in a world where people are constantly only contending for their truth, what they believe in, or their convictions. Contending for the faith of people necessarily involves contending for beliefs, but it's contending for beliefs for the sake of uniting people with the Father, for saving people. It's not for the sake of proving your point. Yes, 
the glory of God is also a primary concern at all times, but it's not the focus of this portion of the letter, and we can't invalidate the importance of guarding our brothers and sisters by using a sort of whataboutism of God's glory to eclipse the value of human beings through which his glory is intended to be displayed in the world. So in order that God's glory might be displayed through people that you and he both care about, you and I must take the first step towards initiate with, fight for, contend with, exert effort on behalf of those whom God loves who are being led away by falsehoods and lies. And your tools, our tools with which to wage this war are mercy, peace, and love because those things are what you need to get up out of bed in the morning, wade through a culture that is nothing but sound and fury signifying a preoccupation of self and get up and love people like Jesus does. And more importantly, these resources are the ones that Jude prays for because they're designed to make us more like Jesus and less like the world, and that is powerful. Look, what, what Jude is calling us to here is essentially holiness. God is holy. Anything that is holy is that way because they got it from God. Holiness is being like God, and God loves mercy. Jude is praying that you abound with mercy, love, and peace. These are things which the Lord loves. Moreover, they come from him, and they're what he requires of us. Malachi 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with your God? Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Contending for the faith of those who are falling away means loving mercy enough to not just let them go. It means mercifully doing justice by going after them and bringing them back. And it means walking humbly with your God in the sense that you have the humility enough to do what God requires of you even if it is deeply uncomfortable. Holiness does not mean distancing yourself from a brother caught in sin. It means going after them. Holiness is not allergic to sin. It is meant to overcome sin. Biblical Christianity and contending for your brothers and sisters is not casually writing off people. It's not like the false teachers who show favoritism to gain an advantage. Perhaps you have noticed The religion of the world does not really contend very much on a personal level. And sure, a mob fights for the greater mob mentality, but persons don't go after persons setting aside their own good for the good of the person that they're chasing after. Worldly religion would have you write off a person that you perceive to hold a dangerous belief. You say, well, that person is getting blocked on Facebook. I'm not talking to him anymore. That person is not coming over to dinner anymore. That's not the kind of person I want in my life, my friend circles, my small group. Worldly thinking dismisses and it excludes. It does not go after. It fights for opinions. It doesn't contend for persons. Now sure, it might sometimes claim to do so, but it only ever results in a checking of boxes and a fulfilling of obligations. It contends in the sense of giving them a chance that you know they're not even going to take you up on, and when they don't, you get to wash your hands of it and say, well, I tried. It's not earnestly contending. Now the false teachers They show favoritism to gain an advantage. They're preying on the right sort of people and they're rejecting the wrong sort. Biblical Christianity knows we are all the wrong sort. 
but our older brother Jesus went after us and he pulled us back from the definition of too far gone because he loves mercy. He did not cure us from a disease. He raised us from the dead. He did not merely talk to the awkward person in the room. He embraced lepers and rather than getting sick, he made them well because Jesus' justice is merciful and infectious. Christ contending for us was unnatural. It was, in fact, supernatural. It was not rational by human perspectives. He contended for faith that people didn't even have yet. So no, that person that you do not want to put the effort in for is not too gone, too far gone because we're not in the business of doing likely things. We're in the business of doing miraculous things. And that's why we're given unexpectedly simple tools, even absurdly simple tools, like mercy, love, and peace for doing impossibly great things like winning wars. And I love this contrast because it flies in the face of worldly reductionistic emotional categories. Worldly thinking would have you believe that you must pick one. You can either be a lover or a fighter. You can make love or you can make war. You can have doctrine or you can have kindness. It's a pitiful imitation of biblical Christianity because not only can you do must, can you do both by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must do both. So we need to develop and cultivate a Christianity according to the word of God and the power of scripture and the Holy Spirit that can do both. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but he doesn't say they're not weapons or it's not war. He says they have the divine power to demolish strongholds, arguments, and every prideful opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The fact that our weapons are love, mercy, and peace in no way diminishes the fact that they are given to us for the sake of waging God-ordained war. Most people think of love and they conclude that it's no good for fighting because our natural human definition of love is weak. Evangelism is not a work of men. It's a loving miracle of the Holy Spirit that you and I are equipped and called by God to participate in. And that's how Jude can spend the first 24 verses of his book warning us about the danger of people who could separate us from the Father and still close the book by earnestly giving glory to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the glory of his presence with great joy. Our contending and our fighting and our warfare is only effective because it is one of the primary means by which our older brother is contending for our younger brothers. And he does not lose. Do not assume that the importance of our participation implies the possibility of our failure. Christ is running this show and he never loses his people. But listen, all of this talk is worthless. It is meaningless if you do not know the man I'm talking about. If I don't know my spouse, I can't tell you what she wants for her birthday. If I don't know my mother, I can't tell you what the code word is. If I don't know my father's instructions, I can't keep my little siblings from touching the stove. And if I don't know the object of the faith, which has once and for all been delivered to you, the saints, I cannot contend for that faith. The root of what makes these false teachers that Jude is concerned about so dangerous is that they stand to separate us from our greatest needs by looking like our greatest desires. We run to hidden reefs 
looking for calm waters. We turn to dangerous shepherds because we need protection. We chase clouds deeper into the desert because we're thirsty for water. We pick over dead trees looking for fruit because we're starving. We follow stars because it's dark out and we cannot see the way on our own. If you find yourself in need of any of these things this morning, I have only good news for you. The faith that was once and for all delivered to us the saints is a faith in the good shepherd who calms the waves and feeds his sheep and leads them to streams of living water and guides their path and laid down his life for them. He is the morning star and his light never grows dim or changes. Look to Jesus, be saved by him, satisfied in him. And once you've got a hold of him, reach out, grab your brothers and sisters and lovingly, mercifully drag them with you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are in a complete state of dependence upon you to even begin to understand the word that you have for us, much less to obey it. We cannot see who you are and who we are and identify our brothers and sisters without knowing your word in our hearts, and that's a gift by your spirit, so we pray for that. We ask you according to your word and your will to illumine and open our hearts that we might see you clearly, that we might know the voice of our shepherd. So we thank you for your promises, and we trust you for these things, that you will one day present us before the presence of your glory with great joy. We trust you to keep us from stumbling. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.